Say what? Oh, I know, right? You know, Chris could grow a pretty epic beard, but it's not 80s enough for him. (laughs) (laughs) I only say it because he's not in here. He might be in here. Who knows? You got to turn the lights up a little bit, though, where I can see everybody. Um, Yeah, and yell. I already told the people at the sound booth, like, I kind of get worked up at times. I get to yelling. I have to, like, tone it back some, you know. The loud, the, the, the live feed will sound like on Charlie Brown, the <laughs> all the way through it. Um, but my name's Jay. If you ever met me, welcome. We get to meet each other. Shake your hands out here. Um, one of the pastors here, I get to uh, work with students every, every week, and it's a joy, um, you know, and I'm excited to get to be able to preach with you guys, preach to you guys this week. A little bit of a hard subject, not quite as hard as Ben's, but a hard subject in and of itself still, because it's probably something that I struggle with personally, um, and I think that we could probably both relate, that we can all relate to this. We all struggle with this as well. So um, thankful for Ben, he's not in here, but thankful for Ben that he got last week and I didn't. Um, (laughs) But no, uh, And that was a very difficult word that he preached through last week, and I'm thankful that he did. One of the hardest things as a pastor is to to preach on subjects to people that you love that you know it will hurt and that it will cut. And and that's hard because the last thing you want to do is to cause any kind of pain. But as, as Christians, we know that sometimes when we read the word, that the word cuts us. And it, and it exposes things in us. And so we have to be willing and able to listen and preach those things and have those hard conversations and hear those hard conversations to be able to um, look more like Jesus on the backside. And so I'm thankful that Ben um, did, did that in such a graceful way. Um, so what I want to do is I want to continue in the chapter of uh, Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be talking about children, all right? Nathan touched on it a few weeks ago in Mark 9, talking about when these children came up to Jesus and stuff. And so we're going to, another kind of incident like that happens again, and we're going to see some reactions of the, of the disciples. We're going to see the reaction of Jesus, and we're going to be able to kind of pull a few things from that, that text But before we start, I want to kind of talk about this idea that we live in a fatherless generation. Like the world that we live in, there are a lot of absent fathers, whether that's, and I don't mean just in divorced families like we talked last week, but even just fathers that are absent because of trying to live the American dream and provide for their family and they become detached and there's not a male role model in, in a child's life. So talking in both scenarios of an actual physical absence of a father and then even just maybe the mental and spiritual absence of a father as well. But we live in this fatherless generation. I've recognized this more in the past 11 weeks than ever. Like I knew it. Um, and the reason I say that in 11 weeks, I've been working with the students for nine years, but we live in Pleasant View. It's a little bit of a bubble. Um, we're not the most diverse Okay, um, and we've got a lot, especially in Pleasant View. It's just we have a lot of really good families. Like I probably have more kids in my youth group whose parents are together um, now than 
you know, that aren't, okay? And, but there are, you know, that, that does exist here in the context of the community that we live in, that there are families that are, are split and there are kids that come from single family homes. But 11 weeks ago, y'all probably don't, some of you know, some of you don't. I went from being landscaper, like working, wearing Carhartts and boots every day to, hey, you wanna be a teacher? Like, yeah, I know, the silence, yeah, exactly. That was kind of my thought too. Like, man, they're gonna let this guy be a teacher? Um, but I had planned on going back to become a teacher, but I just thought like, I'm gonna go do, get my master's degree, take a couple, maybe two years, become a teacher, whatnot. Work with students, I feel called to work with students, that's what I wanna do. So I get accepted into the program, the master's program, and then all of a sudden, he's not here today. He's my boss now. He was like my best friend, and then he became my boss, uh, Brad Hudson. He, uh, he's the assistant principal at Northeast High School, and he goes, hey, uh, Jay, uh, there's this job opening. And I'm like, oh, cool, tell me about it. You know, not thinking anything about it. We talked about education and what it looked like for me to maybe come in and be a teacher one day. He's like, hey, we got this construction job. And I'm like, whoa, God. And he said, what? And I said, uh, I think this might be a God thing. He says, well, that's why I'm calling you. Um, and so I interviewed. That was on a Friday. I applied on a Sunday, interviewed on a Wednesday, and got the job on Thursday. And it went, hey, you're going to be a teacher in two years. To, you're going to be a teacher in two weeks. And you've never stepped foot into an education course a day in your life in college, right? And, and so I remember sitting with the principal and he said, hey, you're coming in. School's already been in session for like five weeks, four or five weeks. These kids are accustomed to the old teacher. He said, honestly, you know how some people say, you're gonna be tried by fire. He said, you're gonna be tried by fire and squad, just to let you know. Like, <laughs> he says, it's gonna be, it's gonna be interesting. And, and it has, it's been, uh, it's been a, it's been a true test. The, the, the good days outnumber the bad days by far. Lots of fruit. I've got to talk about Jesus a lot of times, and, uh, and that's been good. Um, kids just ask questions, and I get to talk about it. And hopefully there's no repercussions from that. We'll see. <laughs> um, but it's, it's been good. But in the process of that, the culture we live in, and like a lot of you know, the kind of the construction world is sometimes maybe the outcasts. It's the blue-collar workers. They're maybe a little rough around the edges, look very similar to me, I guess. Um, don't trim their beards and, you know, what's that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, and so, um, and so a lot of times in the education system, these like elective type programs become dumping grounds. And so there's a huge disciplinary problems and a lot of kids that just want an easy grade or they just want something easy to do. And so they put them in these classes. And so my classes are very interesting at times, like kids standing on desks. And I'm like, why are you standing on the desk? Why are you standing on the desk? You know, yelling at each other and stuff. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I could, we could cover the whole sermon on talking about incidents that happen in shop class. Um, the good things, the worst accident we've had was a splinter in a finger and smashed their fingernail. So we're okay so far. We have not lost any fingers or anything like that, so we're still batting a 1,000 
on that area. Um, but because of having a lot of these disciplinary type problems, I get to make a lot of phone calls, lots of phone calls to parents. And, and the way it works is that you pull up the, on the, you know, you have this database. This is one of the things that is definitely my weak, my shortcomings is technology. And uh, so you pull up this like database and it kind of gives the whole story of this kid, like who his parents are, if he has parents, like what's his situation or her situation that they're in, like is it their, is it their mom and dad, is it an aunt or is it a grandmother or is it just a, a guardian or what is it? And, and so as I go through, and it got me thinking one day, man, I called one afternoon, I called like seven, seven or eight parents and every single one that I called, it was mother has custody, dad can't talk to him, or dad had, or grandma has custody, or state has custody, parents couldn't, every single one of them. And it was, it was a little heartbreaking on the backside because I was like, whoa, man, I understand a little bit more why these kids act and do the things that they do because they don't have, they've had people check out on them and they, and they don't know how to act and they don't know how to do, do things the right way. Um, and so it's kind of brought to light to me a little bit more about this idea of this fatherless generation. Um, and so here's a few statistics from, from a fatherless generation. It's an organization, that, that's what they deal with. 63% of youth suicides are from a fatherless home. That comes from the U.S. Department of Health. 63% of kids that commit suicide come from a family where there's not a father present. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are for fatherless homes. 85% of children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. That's from the Center of Disease Control. 71% of all high school dropouts. It's a crazy how high these numbers are just based on when there's an absent parent or absent mom or an absent dad in a kid's life. It's not that we just have a fatherless generation, but we also have a generation where 50% of kids, 50% of kids, all kids will witness the breakup of a parent's marriage. One out of every two kids will witness their parents separating and that will have to live in different places or have to do multiple Christmases, or might not ever even get to see that parent again. And there's a lot that goes in with those families, and there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff. And, and like Ben said last week, man, there is abundant, abundant grace available, right? Like, so this is not some shame session, like you should have kept it together, and you should have stayed together for the kids. No, it's not that. And there's abundant grace, and God redeems all things. But these are just numbers that we take from the information that's been given. You see, but the same thing is it's, it's equated into kind of our overall culture and that we live in as well. Those who don't have an active relationship with the Heavenly Father, like the world that we live in, the America that we live in, we see this idea of there not being a real fatherless 
you know, a fatherless generation as well. There are so many people that don't claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There are so many people that say they know Jesus but truly don't know, that their life shows no evidence of it other than the words from their mouth claims that they do, but there is no evidence in their life. And so we live in this fatherless generation and you see, we all have jobs. A lot of us in here are blue-collar kind of guys and, and ladies. Like, we work in, and even in white-collar worlds, there are conversations that happen, and there are relationships that happen in those workplaces. We see it daily. And it just shows of how there's just people that have, that have lost view of God. And we, we see that all through the Old Testament. We take the, the people of Israel and it's like they see God, they follow God, then they fall away from God. And we see God bring like all these prophets in and, you know, these prophets are like yelling at them and going and telling them that they need to repent and turn back to God and all this. But there's this, it's always been this like ebb and flow. And I feel like at this point, we're still in one of these, like we're a fatherless generation that we live in right now. Our culture is so accepting of kind of whatever floats your boat, finding your own way, you know, that there are multiple paths in order to reach the end. Being spiritual, however that might look, whatever that, that spiritual life looks like. And we see people wandering blindly, just walking around blindly, just kind of like bumping into walls, hoping that they eventually get to where they need to go. And so that kind of brings us to our text this morning in Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. And we've all heard this, and this is gonna be very similar to what Nathan preached, the account that Nathan preached a few weeks ago. And so Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. And it goes like this, and they were bringing children to him, like parents, aunts, uncles, whoever, were bringing children to him that he might touch them. Jesus might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He says, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a small child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. I mean, we see, we see some things, some pretty Negative words here. We see rebuked. We see the disciples rebuke the children. And then we see Jesus become very indignant, annoyed, and aggravated with the disciples. And so we can kind of draw two things from this text today. The first one being to be able to enter into heaven, one must have childlike faith. In order to enter into heaven, one must have childlike faith. Matthew 28, 2 and 3 the same account of this story from a different view and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so to be able to enter, one must have childlike faith. One must 
turn into a child in order to be able to enter into heaven. And we'll unpack that a little bit more. And then the second one is this. Heaven is much is as much for you and I as it is for the outcast and socially unacceptable in this world. Heaven is as much for you and I as it is for the outcast and the socially unacceptable in this world. So in order, here we go, point one. So in order to enter into the kingdom, one must accept it as if they were a little child, full of trust. They must fully and wholly trust. One must fully and wholly trust in this thing called salvation through this guy named Jesus through his death on a cross 2,000 years ago. The logical side of us says, that's weird. I mean, like if we really were to pull ourselves back, even though we've grown up in a church our whole life, if we were to separate ourselves from this, if we were never to be raised in Christianity, but we were to look at it and say, this guy 2,000 years ago came to this world, was flesh of the God of all creation for all of eternity, turns into a man, lives a perfect life for 33 years and then dies on the cross, and all we gotta do believe? That's hard. You see, that's why, because we are such an intellectual culture as well, that's why people have such a hard time believing that. I mean, like, if, and if I was to separate myself, I'd have to, I, I would have a, be a skeptic too. I'd say, mm, I don't know about that. But in order for one to enter into the kingdom, one must accept that truth as if they were a little child, full of trust and simplicity. You know, that it's not complicated, that all it is is confess and believe. Confess that you're a sinner, recognize that you need Jesus, that you can't do it on your own, and then believe that he's the only way. That it's that simple. Confess, believe. And so we see these instances in the Bible when God told man or woman to do something, and he or she did it. And it didn't make any sense whatsoever. But they trust with that childlike faith. And I would say that even in those instances that those people had to have questioned God at some point. Because, you know, they were as much intellectual probably as we were, or as we are, excuse me. And so it probably, they probably had some doubts and they were probably skeptical at times as well. And so when God spoke to them, they probably said, really? That makes no sense. But in the midst, when, when they trusted in, in, in this plan that God had spoke, God blessed it. God blessed it and did miraculous, mighty things. So let's just kind of start at the beginning, and we'll just hit a few of them. Noah and the ark. I mean, that's crazy, right? God tells Noah, go build a ship, big ship, and get two of every animal. Like, imagine that right now. Like, think of the amount of room that we would have to get to Nashville Zoo to fit inside of it, right? But like, hey, Noah, you live in a land where there's not a whole lot of rainfall, and you probably have never seen a flood in your life. But what you're gonna do, you're gonna build a big boat. You're gonna build a real big boat. And I'm sure Noah probably 
had conversations with God off in his tent or walking through the desert or whatever and said, God, that makes no sense. But God said, do it. Noah said, all right, you know more than I do. I mean, it's that, it's that simple trust. See, we start to see this childlike faith because intellectually we would say, no, God, I think I've got a better grasp on this world right now than you do. But instead, Noah said, okay, childlike faith builds a boat. <laughs> Flood comes, right? I mean, we're thankful that we get to be on the backside of this story and we get to see it because I guarantee you, you and I, we would have been standing, pointing at Noah and be like, that dude's a fool. That guy's crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's that guy that lives over in the holler. Yeah, don't go around him. But Noah, with that childlike faith, said, okay, God, let's do it. Abraham and Isaac, right? Abraham takes Isaac, puts him up on the mountain. God says, kill your son, right? Like, as a father, there's no way in this world could I ever, ever think about killing my own son. But Abraham, with that childlike faith, said, okay, God, I'll do it. And he takes Isaac and he brings him up on the mountain. And Isaac carries the wood on his back up the mountain. They build the altar, lays Isaac, binds him, like ties him up, lays him on the altar, pulls the knife, about to kill him. God says, whoa, Abraham, job well done. And he says, and then they provide, he provides a sacrifice, provides a ram. We see that childlike faith that made absolutely no sense and inside the deepest parts of our being say no, but God says yes. Moses to Egypt, to this great nation. Go, Moses, let my, go tell them, let my people go. Ooh, right? Some of you old Christian, old church people, y'all know that song. The young kids, when I do that, they're like, what are you talking about? Ooh, Pharaoh, let my people go. <sighs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm glad some of y'all know that. Um, but, you know, Moses, and then Moses even kind of doubted, and he like told, he told God, he's like, well, I don't speak real well. And he's like, well, fine. Take your brother Aaron with you too, all right? And so they go, and they go into Egypt, this great nation, and they tell Pharaoh to let, her, let their people go. Huh. And then they take them. I just, I, can't, I have a hard time getting past that part. And they take, they take the people of Israel, and they wander off into the desert. But let's back up a little bit. They're running away from Pharaoh's, like, people, and they get to the Red Sea, and then God's like, hey, just take your staff and go, you know, Harry Potter it, right? And so he does it, and the whole sea splits in half. Like, you've got to think there are moments when these people, when God spoke to them, that they said, God, you're crazy. You're crazy. There's no way that this can even be real. but childlike faith, and God blessed it. David and Goliath, the little youngest boy goes just to take food to his brothers. He hears Goliath cussing at his people, and he says, no. He goes, this battle does not belong to us, but it belongs to the Lord. 
And so he goes, and David says, I'll fight him. And everyone's like, uh, you're a little guy, and you're really young. But he says, no, I got this. It's not my battle. And God told him, God spoke to him and said, go do this. And David goes with childlike faith, slings a rock right into the head of Goliath, and down he goes. Makes no sense but that childlike faith. Then we look at Mary. God speaks to Mary and says, hey, you're gonna conceive, you're gonna have a child. And Mary's like, what? No. Like, I'm not even married to Joseph. I'm a virgin. I've never, like, I've never been touched by a man. This makes no sense. God says, this is, this is how it's gonna be. And I'm sure that Mary had those conversations with God at times, but she, with that childlike faith, okay, God, you got this. You're in control of this situation in my life. And then we see Jesus come from that. And then ultimately, this leads to Jesus. We see Jesus in the ultimate act of obedience and faith of a child hang on a cross. The same thing, Jesus displaced this childlike faith knowing that his God, that his Father has an ultimate plan and that he just has to let go and let God kind of concept. And so Jesus, making zero sense, this perfect man has to die, dies, and he was perfectly obedient. And now you and I get to enjoy the blessing that God blessed in that situation. And so we take those stories, but now we, let's take it to a personal level. Draw from your own experiences of your children, your own children. Maybe you don't have your children, but your nieces or your nephews or your friends' kids or one of the Ziegler's eights or the royalty seven, you know, one of theirs. You can use, they got plenty to use. But draw from those experiences where you've, you've watched and witnessed something happen. Children's needs, how much children need things. You know, like Ruger, he was a pretty easy child. He didn't like to sleep a whole lot until he was like 18 months, and then he slept really good, and then even like now he likes to sleep a whole lot. <laughs> but children's need, like our children, my wife and I, children, Jesse and I's children need us. They need us daily, hourly, minutes. Ruby needs Jesse every second, literally, all right? Like, Ruby, the first thing, she wakes up in the morning, and she's yelling, milk, milk. Like, literally, she'll just walk around with this curly hair in her face, like, blindly walking, milk. And then she'll get her milk, and then all of a sudden, it's like, pop part. And it's like, that means Pop-Tart in 18-month-old or 20-month-old. Pop-Tart, Pop-Tart, or cereal, or chicken. Like, you want, she wants chicken. She gets that off from her mother. That's obviously a lie. <laughs> I'm probably one of the most impatient people in the world, potentially. Like, I am the guy that if you don't pick up, I'm, like, phone bombing and texting. Like, impatient. And <laughs> Ruby, she's that child. But she has this ultimate need for us. 
She cannot functionally exist without us. If we were to leave for a week and leave her in the house, we wouldn't have a child anymore or a house potentially or a clean record. (laughs) But she needs us for every moment of her life and her existence. And up to a certain point, children do exactly as they're directed to do to a degree. Would you, yeah? Like, hey, come here. You know, you say that to a high school kid. Like, I say that now to one of my, like, juniors. Hey, come here. Why? Because I want to give you a candy bar. You know, like, I'm going to give you something good. They, you know, they immediately, it's like, why? Why do you need me? But, like, children up to a certain age are... Okay, they trust. Come here. You know, or stay away from that. And you don't even have to give an explanation to why. Like, don't touch the stove. Okay, they don't. To a, to a point, eventually they do. But this childlike faith that they don't have to ask why, and they don't question their father or their mother. You know, they don't have that dialogue in their head. Like, they don't process in that way. They're not so intellectual that they think, why do they want me over there? Is there an alternative motive to this? And, like, am I going to get a whooping or am I going to get a cookie or am I, what's going to happen? You know, like, they just do it. They just show up. They just come up to you. And so we see that in our own personal lives, the need of a child, And so, to reiterate, in order to enter into the kingdom, one must accept as if they were a little child full of trust. A guy named Matthew Black quotes, this is one of his quotes, it says, every single child in this world is absolutely, completely, totally, objectively, subjectively, existentially helpless. And so it is with every child who is born into the kingdom of God. Children of the kingdom enter it helpless. Ones for whom everything must be done. I mean, that is us. We are children. And when we enter into the kingdom, we are helpless. And there are moments that we look and cry out to God because we're frustrated and we don't understand. Just like when she wants a Pop-Tart and I don't understand what she's saying. But the same happens when we cry out to God because we can't communicate what God ultimately knows. And we can't, we don't see the plan that God has. And he just says, come on, just trust me, just run to me and I'll take care of the rest. Augustus Toplady, who is an Anglican preacher and a hymnist, he wrote this in a a song or in a hymn But it it says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. That is who we are when we enter into the kingdom. That is who our children are when they enter into this life. They brought nothing into this world. 
And they simply cling to us as parents because that is the only thing that they know is true at this point or the only solid thing that they see in this world. And the same is true that when we enter into the kingdom, we can offer nothing. We can't offer how smart we are or how well we speak or how much money that we have. And we can't bring anything. And so we simply cling to the cross because that is the only thing that is solid and certain in this life. And it says, helpless, look to thee for grace. And we plead to God, God, just show grace upon me. You see, and then it's our job as parents and as friends. You see, one of the reasons that we here at 24 Church believe that micro churches are such a big deal is because we truly believe that it takes a village to raise a child. And like there are men in my child's life in our micro church that show my child Jesus. Like I got Ty right here. Like, he co-leads, him and I, we lead our micro church together. And he shows my son Jesus sometimes more than I do. And I need guys like that in my child's life. I need multiple people showing my child what it looks like to cling to the cross. And so as parents and as friends and as, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, We have to cultivate the necessity for Christ in our own lives that we might model that necessity for our children and for our friends' children and for the people around us, that they may never see us as their Savior, but as the one who points them to the true Savior. The truth is, is that we are all helpless to save ourselves. Have you come to Christ like this? Is this the way that you interact with Jesus? Is it his grace plus your nothingness? But you see, we move on to the next point that we pull out of this text. The fatherless generation is full of outcasts. We live in a world where there are so many outcasts, schools. Like I walk into the cafeteria almost every day. There are 1,500 students at this school. And so, in my opinion, that I feel like that there would be enough of some of the similar type kids that they might interact with one another. Like, they have similar interests, so they might interact with one another. And it doesn't, there's not a day that I don't go by that I don't go into that cafeteria and I don't see kids sitting by themselves. Just totally outcast. Like, nobody even walks up to these kids or invites these kids, and they just sit there by themselves. You see, the thing is, it's in the, same, in the same realm of the workplaces that you work in or live in. Everybody knows that person that's a little different, that you're like, man, I have a real hard time relating to that person, and so I don't even know how I would even begin to have a relationship with that person. But the fatherless generation is full of outcasts. And so the second truth we pull from the text is heaven is just as much for the outcast as it is for you or I. Jesus came as much for the outcast as he did for you or I. You see, because at one point we were the outcast. 
And so a few things historically in this text, and Nathan touched on it several weeks ago, that children were looked upon as outcast, as like not even a relevant placeholder in the world until they they came of age and they had the ability to contribute. Children were nothing. They were an annoyance and a nuisance. Yeah, I know, right? Thought that at 4.30 this morning. (laughs) But that's how the world and that culture looked upon children. And so we see this story where the children come running to Jesus. And so one of the questions that we gotta ask ourselves is like, why, is these, why are these children running to Jesus? Why are they running to this guy? Like, who is this Jesus at this point? Because he's pretty new, he's relatively new on the scene, but Jesus, if you think about it, he was a modern day superstar at this point. Like, People Magazine was doing write-ups about him all the time, or Entertainment Weekly, or, or Time Magazine, we're doing write-ups on this guy. Like, like, this guy was famous. And so everybody knew who he was, and everybody wanted to be around him, and everybody knew what he had been doing. I mean, think about, like, just the way things go, word of mouth. You know, the word of mouth had been, had been doing miracles, and he had been teaching and, like, teaching over top of these Pharisees that were the, the know-it-alls of the time and the day and the age, and they were the ones that knew everything about the Old Testament, and they knew what Scripture meant, and then all of a sudden, this guy named Jesus comes in, and he's, like, teaching over them, and he's, like, outsmarting them because then they're asking him questions like, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He's like, well, Deuteronomy 6 says, love the Lord your God with everything that you have. But then he goes and he says, but the second's like this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. You know, and then he runs into a lady where she had committed adultery and he draws a, a line. He says, all right, you without sin cast the first stone. You know, like he like starts checkmating all these Pharisees all the time. So you got to imagine that people probably felt a little sour about the Pharisees and that there was this guy that was coming in and like trump carding them. What about that, right? So Jesus got this name for being very famous and very smart and loving. You see, he wasn't like the Pharisees. Like, he loved people. We see in this text that he, like, wraps his arms around these children and loves them. And so he'd been doing miracles and teaching and more miracles and more teaching and more miracles. And so just like any kind of celebrity in this day and age, we want to try to get as close to that person, whether it's to take a picture of them over the shoulder of somebody else in order so you can post it on your Facebook to say that I know this person or I saw this person. And so these people had brought their children in order just for Jesus to be able to lay hands on them and to bless these children. Nathan said in Mark 9, 37, whoever receives One such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. It was a huge deal that Jesus was loving these kids. And then again, these disciples who just recently had been rebuked by Jesus saying, let them come, and if you hinder them, you would be better to tie a rock around your neck and throw yourself in the middle of the Cumberland River. You would be better to do that than hinder one of these children to come to me. 
That's some pretty serious speech that Jesus just gave the disciples. Yet, here they are again. Children come running up to Jesus. Disciples get upset. They rebuke the children because they're blinded by their own traditions and their own cultural raising and their own intellectual knowledge. And they rebuke the kids. You're useless. Stay away from this man. He's got better things to do. And it says that Jesus became very angry and annoyed. He became indignant with his disciples. And I'm sure like probably later on, ripped him a new one was like, guys, do you not understand? Are you that big of a knucklehead? Like we just talked about this. And we can draw from our own kind of experiences with our own children as well. Like I just told you not to do that. You just did it again. But in essence, these disciples were just children. I mean, they were just children, and Jesus was having to raise them and teach them and constantly, like, beat into their head the same thing over and over again. And he says that, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. You see, this goes a little bit further than just children as well. Like we read the text, and in the text we read it as the children don't hinder them because the kingdom belongs to them. But the children also can be symbolic of just the outcasts, the modern-day outcasts of the world too. Because children were outcasts, but Jesus said this kingdom belongs to them. It doesn't belong to the self-righteous. It doesn't belong to the intellectually superior. It belongs to the ones that trust like a child. And so this fatherless generation that we live in creates those outcasts. The statistics show it there. It shows, statistics show also that crime rates, that that incarcerations are higher. The ones, the, the number of people incarcerated are higher with the ones that don't have a father figure. It also shows like with girls that girls who don't have an active father figure are more likely to become pregnant earlier or more likely to become divorced. And so this fatherless generation creates those outcasts. You see, but this is where the church comes into action. This is where you and I, Christians, this is where we come into action. This is what we're called to do. And we see in this text of being called to do this. But James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. And I mean, they literally mean the orphans and the widows because, again, culturally at that time, they were outcasts. They were put on the back burner because they couldn't contribute to society like a man, like a, 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 a mature man could. And so they pushed them to the side. And you see, it says pure religion is this, is that we visit the orphans and the widows we involve ourselves with the orphans and the widows. We involve ourselves with the socially outcast, different, dirty people. And it's funny how God works in your own personal life 
in moments like this. Yesterday, I went and I sat at a coffee shop. I felt like Ben. I even asked him which one was a good one to go to. And I sat and I worked on this message. And just trying to like go through my thoughts like I'd been gathering and writing notes all week for the past couple weeks. And I was just going to try to pull it all together and just try to organize my thoughts. And so I start writing and I'm, and I'm typing it in and I'm deleting stuff. And then Jesse calls me. The, I was getting our car serviced and she says, hey, I'm, I'm coming up to Nashville. Do you want to eat lunch? And I was like, yeah, man, that'd, be, that'd be great. And so I was like, all right, I'll meet you wherever. Where do you want to go? And so Ruger, he goes, I want to go to sushi train. Like eight-year-old wants to eat sushi all the time. Fine by me. Um, and so we, we go to sushi train, and we're eating in the little conveyor belts coming by, and he's yanking plates, and I'm telling him, like, you better eat all that or else we're going to get charged for it. And then we're about to check out, and I see all these guys, kind of rough, rowdy-looking guys, tattooed, rough, walking out the door. Right, and I could tell it was probably it was probably a Christmas party, like maybe a corporate Christmas party or something like that, construction company Christmas party, because they're just walking out and they're not paying. And then I, I kind of start looking. I see a couple more go by, and I'm like, I think these guys are criminals. And like I, I really, and, and I'm like, I think there's something going on here. And so all of them get outside. They're hooting and hollering, just being loud. And then this guy goes up to pay. And I went up to him, and I'd like to talk to everybody. That's just what I do. I follow in my dad's footsteps, and Ruger follows in mine. Um, I go up to the guy, and I'm like, popular guy today, aren't you? He's like, oh, yeah. I said, well, what, you, what are y'all doing? And knowing good and well, I, I think I had a pretty good clue of what it was, but I just wanted to see what he would say. He said, man, this is a ministry for a bunch of criminals and drug pushers. And I was like, man. And I thought, whew. Because I just wrote down like four hours before that, that the kingdom of heaven is just as much for you or I as it is for the outcast. And there's this guy taking a bunch of criminals and drug pushers to eat sushi in order that he might be able to speak the gospel into their lives. And I thought, oh, whoa, God. And it's moments like that, and I think, and I hope that you kind of maybe grasp some of those moments in your life to recognize, like, when God does things like that, that it strengthens our ability to have trust like a child and have faith like a child. When we see God do things like that, it's not coincidental that I'm writing and I'm about to preach a message on this. And then God puts these criminals and these drug pushers in the same restaurant as me. And that there's this guy sharing the gospel with them and he takes them to eat sushi. And it's moments like that that we have to grab onto and cling to and say, yes, God is real. And that's why this guy who died on a cross that came to live for 33 years, yeah, it makes no sense to me as an intellectual person. But when I see moments like that, I cling.
cling to him and I say, God is real and God is doing something. And it's in those moments, I'm sure that Noah's faith was strengthened and Moses' faith was strengthened and Mary's faith was strengthened in those moments when they listened like a child and God blessed them. And the same is true for us today. Another passage in Mark 2, we talked earlier this year about, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I wrote this four hours before seeing this happen right before my eyes. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, I came to call sinners. You and I are called to reach the outcasts. Christians, you are called to roll your sleeves up and in the back of your mind be like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? And it's okay to think that. And then just trudge forward. Because in those moments when those people show up in your life, it's for a purpose. It is not coincidental. It is divine. God put them there. This is the oppressed people. The generation that we live in is the oppressed people, and they deserve to be in his heaven as much as you, you and I do. And it takes time, and it takes heartache, and it takes aggravation, and it takes sacrifice. And the thing is that we have to do, and this is where it hurts, because this is where the sacrifice happens, that we have to adjust the rhythm of our lives to match the rhythm of those who we are on mission to. When that person shows up in your life, you're gonna have to match the rhythm of your life to match the rhythm of theirs theirs in order to be on mission with them. And that's tough. And what does the outcast want? They want equality. You see, because in this society, they don't have equality. They're looked on as second-class citizens. But in this kingdom, in this culture, they're as, as important as you or I. Jesus says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In the kingdom, they are equal. And they deserve it as much as you or I do. And that's what the church, that's where the church should come in. And we gotta love the outcast, this fatherless generation, and we gotta do so in such a way that it shatters the norm, that when people look at us, It just points to God and it makes much of him. And I heard a pastor say, and I've used it over and over, and it's eventually gonna probably get old, but I use it over and over. But when we shatter that norm, it says, this pastor says that our confidence in Christ, our confidence in Christ creates a curiosity in Christ. When we go with childlike faith, and we do it in such a way that we trust in God and we have confidence that what God's gonna do, he's gonna finish, it begins to spark the curiosity of those around us. When you start doing things 
in the name of Jesus and in, in, in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to cause a little bit of commotion around you. And people are going to look at it and they're going to say, hmm, I want to know more about that. And so I want to close with this. Responding with childlike faith. If today is the day and, and you don't and you don't know if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you don't know if that intellectually that you can even handle that. And you got questions. There's going to be uh, maybe some of the pastors, and there'll be I'll be up here. Um, some of the deacons will be up here, but we'd love to talk with you. Like during this time that we come to respond in communion, if you have questions, please come ask questions. But when we read this text that we've got to remember just like Moses and Noah and Mary and just like Jesus, that we have got to respond like a child, that we've just got to run with reckless abandonment into the arms of God because we know that he does all things for our good and for his glory, and we just have to let him go. We just have to let it go and do. And that we've got to go to the lost and to the outcast that they deserve heaven as much as you or I do. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this, this day and this time to be together and to read and hear your word. God, I thank you for moments like yesterday where you painted a picture so clearly and gave me a moment to hold on to in order to be able to trust you more. And God, my prayer is, is that you would help me to trust more. God, that you would help me not to make excuses. God, I pray that in this, for this whole entire room, God, I pray that that would be the prayer of all of our people. God, that you would just, you would help us to trust like a child. And so, God, I just pray for those in this room that might not know you. God, I pray that you would just begin to kind of start pulling at their heart. God, that you would start creating questions in their mind. God, I pray that you would put people around them that could answer those questions, that could show them what it looks like to follow you. God, I pray that you would use these people that you would use me, that you would use 24 Church in this community as a light, God, that people might come to know you as God. And that those people would be lights in their workplaces. And God, that people might come to know you because of those people. And so God, I just pray that you would just bless us empower us, and use us, God, for your kingdom and your glory. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.